Welcome to The Independent Entrepreneur, available online at www.indiebizshow.com. My name is Sean Salisbury, and today we're talking with Les McEwen, a successful entrepreneur who has started scores of businesses and is the author of the book Predictable Success. Les shows us how companies struggle to get to a stage of predictable success, what that means, and the warning signs all entrepreneurs must look out for on the way to and even after reaching predictable success. Les also tells us why starting a business with three to four people increases one's chances for success, what every entrepreneur needs to know about accounting, and why you should triple your initial expectations for your business. And with that, we turn to Les McEwen, who's joining us today via Skype. Les, we start with the same question we ask all our guests, which is, what was your first meaningful job and how would it impact your future career? Oh, uh, I think in terms of anything meaningful that influenced everything that came afterwards, funny enough, I've got to go back all the way to when I was 14. Uh, I was a kid in Ireland. And not because I wanted to, but because of peer pressure, because a group of friends of mine were doing it, I started to get up at 4.30 in the morning to go to a local milk distribution plant. This is about to age me. Uh, This was in the days when vans still went from street to street delivering milk to the doorstep. (laughs) And uh, me and about a half dozen other guys, we'd head out about 4.30 and we'd wait at the uh, factory gate. And when these little electric-powered vans came out, one or more of the drivers would decide that they'd like a little help. They paid us five shillings back in those days, I guess like a buck, something like that, two bucks. Uh, and we worked for two to two and a half hours with these guys dropping milk around from house to house. Although, as I said, I did it for just for peer pressure because my mates were doing it. I grew to love it. And I would do the milk from 4.30, it was five by the time we started. It'd be about 7.30 when I got back. And then I had a morning paper run. I would deliver papers, finish in time to get to school, do school. When I came back from school, then I had an evening paper round, and the evening paper where I was, the Belfast Telegraph, was an even bigger deal than the morning paper. So I would do that for an hour and a half at night, and then at the weekend, I had a little collecting round where I would go from door to door and get paid for all the paper deliveries that week. So what happened was in that period of time, I just grew to love being in charge of my own schedule. It made me, in, in effect, instantly unemployable. <laughs> and uh, although I, I subdued those uh, tendencies for long enough to actually go and qualify as a as an accountant, just immediately I could work for myself. Uh, I did it. I, I mean, I just jumped at it. I was about 23, I think, uh, maybe even earlier, 22. And it was all down to that. It was just that ability to decide whether I wanted to go here or do this and, and being out of school, doing things at times when I shouldn't be doing them, all the sort of stuff that you get to do when you own your own business. So right. That was probably the most impactful thing that I did back in the early days. So you have a unique background in business and have written a, a book that uh, we can talk about today, Predictable Success. Tell us a little bit about your background and how the idea for the book came about. Well, as was established already, I was a, a rather weird child, and um, part of that weirdness was that as I got a little older, I got really intrigued by business in general as a concept, and a mentor of mine, a very early mentor of mine, gave me a really good piece of advice. He was a chartered accountant, which is the UK equivalent of a CPA, and he advised me to go get that qualification, and he saw that I was interested in business, and his advice was, if you understand the numbers, it'll stand you in really good stead, so... I did that. I qualified quite well, came first in my finals in the exams, became the youngest uh, 
partner in a practice in the UK and worked for a number of years, gaining a reputation in advising people on the startup process. I wasn't interested in compliance work, you know, doing tax returns and stuff like that. I really wanted to help advise people. So a couple of folks, you know, it began by peers of mine who wanted to start their own business coming and asking me for advice. I knew nothing about it, of course. So I I made stuff up, which thankfully was close enough to reality that it justified me being paid. And, uh, you know, I was working in a small pond uh, in Northern Ireland. Word grew quickly that I seemed to be able to do this. And of course, people then began from time to time to ask me if I was interested in joining in with them in one of their startups, or maybe they'd have an idea that they didn't want to pursue, but it looked interesting to me. And long story short, by the time I was 35, I had either on my own or with other people launched 42 businesses. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, I was right. It's some sort of sign of madness, doing that same thing over and over again. But, um, you know, even a dumb Irishman gets to see some patterns begin to form when you do something often enough. And what I began to realize that really, really my accounting training was, uh, it was insufficient. I, I was getting these businesses very well financed as best I could. But those startups that I did, and th- these were, you know, uh, tool and die manufacturing business, uh, a specialist uh, publishing house, uh, a PR agency, uh, Pizza Hut license for, master license <laughs> for Ireland, that type of thing. Uh-huh. What I began to realize was that the team was equally important. You could essentially throw as much money as you wanted at the wrong people, and you wouldn't have, you would not get a successful business. Uh, conversely, I discovered, of course, that if you had the right team together, which happened to me, you know, a number of times during that run of of uh, forty two businesses, you could actually launch a really good business with not enough money. We call it bootstrapping these days. So. I got this notion in my head that you had to get sure the business well financed, but you had to get the right team together. And at about that stage, the UK government, which was very interventionist in business in those days, approached myself and another serial entrepreneur, and they asked us if we would combine forces and see if we could design a program to help other people launch businesses, really to wholesale what we'd, we'd been doing at retail level. And the reason for that was simple. The UK at that point was highly dependent on US and South Korean industry, Daewoo, Hyundai, Lucky Gold Star, GM, Ford. And if one of them caught a cold, they could shut a factory down in Liverpool or Manchester and we'd lose 10, 15, 20,000 jobs. So they wanted help in building indigenous business. And Again, to cut a long story short, if we fast forward about eight, nine years, now partner uh, at this point and myself now have a consulting business with 120 employees. We're operating 13 locations worldwide, and we've helped literally hundreds upon hundreds of businesses form and grow. And uh, as a measure of just how dumb two Irish people can be when they get together, what happened, which was really the final piece in the puzzle, that eventually led to the book is about two to three years into this, a couple of the businesses that we were really most proud of failed. And then a few more failed. And we began to see this pattern of businesses that were hitting some something and starting to fail. And we couldn't work out what it was because we'd built these businesses according to this model that, that I'd put together. You know, we made sure they were well financed and they made sure there were really good teams of people. And these were still good management teams, but even excluding the businesses where the market had got away from them, you know, there might have been a demographic shift or a technical shift or a legislative shift. You know, setting all of that aside, there were still really, really good businesses with really good management teams that were well financed and they were they were stammering and, and some of them were failing. And it, and it really got to me. Uh, it got to me psychologically. It got to my ego and it got to my <laughs> 
pocketbook because we were being compensated uh, in a large part by net job creation. That was why government agencies were paying us to do this. And these failures were marked down as net job losses. So you know, people were t- starting to talk about things like clawback, which was a whole new concept to me. <laughs> so long story short, I, I started to look at what could possibly cause otherwise good businesses that got out of the startup phase, what could cause them to fail. And I spent probably from 1995 to about 2006 looking at nothing else. I ultimately sold my share of the consulting business because it came in a, became in a sense of distraction. I, I just immersed myself in why organizations grow and why some fail and some don't. And I, ultimately, I came up with a model I kept going back to my own experience with my own 42 businesses and the hundreds that it helped, uh, and I kept shoehorning everything until it really did fit, and, and, and uh, I could get something that made a lot of sense. And intuitively, what occurred to me was there could only be one thing. There's only other one other variable, and that was some sort of an underlying shift in the organization's structure, the environment within which the people and the money, the team, and the finance worked. And intuitively, I sensed that there was a shift happening at the point where I saw it was seeing these businesses fail, but that it was highly likely that while I was being upset and annoyed by this one shift, there were probably more than one. And I actually found out eventually that there are seven clear stages that every organization goes through. And I had been watching and and rather impotently watching the businesses we were working with hit one of those stages. And so uh, I worked at understanding those more and more and what you needed to do to get out of each stage and into the next stage and how to stay at the peak stage. And that became the methodology that uh, I call predictable success and which is the, the subject of the book. So predictable success is the ideal stage that every business wants to achieve, basically. Yeah, what I found, uh, Sean, is that every business goes through three growth stages to get to predictable success. And not every business needs to, but very many businesses sadly do go through three decline phases uh, if they overshoot past predictable success. But as you quite rightly say, the apex, the prime position for any organization to get in is that state of predictable success. So if you think of it as a parabola or a curve, a life cycle, we've got three growth stages leading up to predictable success. If you do the right thing, you can extend your duration and predictable success, theoretically and definitely. I mean, GE was in predictable success for about 13 to 14 years. But in reality, most businesses, unfortunately, overcook what gets them there and start to fall into the decline stages. So I know that you've talked uh, a lot about you know, many different types of entrepreneurs. You know, there are some that just have an idea or a passion and they end up turning it into a business. And then there are others who you know, love the idea of being in business for themselves. And it almost doesn't matter what particular business they venture off to. Can you talk about that a little bit? You know, who generally do you find is more successful in their ventures? I mean, I know that you're one of the guys that has done a lot of different businesses, but what in your experience uh, has worked best or does it not really matter? Or what's your take on that? Well, I, I've been a bit nonplussed recently in the last couple of years by the seeming proliferation of the follow your passion mm-hmm. uh, model of business. And I've written publicly about it a number of times in my blog and elsewhere that one of the things that I have noticed is that people who get over passionate about the concept, about the thing itself, their product or their service or whatever it is that they're doing, 
two problems come alongside that. One is that often it's paralyzing because people get so passionate about this thing that they get fearful of releasing it into the world as a full-blown business. Right. Uh, and they spend so long polishing it and perfecting it, and they almost get fearful of anybody else tarnishing this great widget that they've come up with that they never get out of the first stage of growth, which I call early struggle. And there are people who I call early struggle obsessives. And they're actually, when it comes down to it, uh, this is a loathsome analogy to make, uh, and, I, and I don't mean it with the negative connotations, but it's almost like you know the drama queens and kings that we see around who just bring way, way, way too much drama into their day-to-day interactions, and they're just tiresome and tiring to be with. Sometimes people can get so concerned and over-concerned about their product or service that they lock themselves into this uh, somewhat insular vacuum in the early struggle stage. And they are almost fearful of other people coming in and helping them get it past early struggle into being an actual business. The second thing is that even if we downplay that side of it, and we talk just about people who are genuinely passionate about, say, their, uh, you know, their fitness chain or whatever it is, overpassion makes people unfortunately unrealistic often in mundane but essential things like estimating the market, working out what their capital expenditure needs to be, taking a reasonable view on how long viability will take to come. And I find that folks who are overly passionate, you know, really consumed, they tend to look on the rosy side of things and they tend to underinvest and overhope in a sense. You know, they're, uh, the major part of their strategy uh, their strategic plan is that other people will see how passionate they are and will get on board. And life, unfortunately, most often isn't like that. So to sort of cut that all down, you know, I've been involved in businesses that I was highly passionate about. I've been involved in businesses that I was entirely dispassionate about. It just, you know, a, a market opportunity came up, like the specialist publishing business that I talked about. There was a window of opportunity for maybe five to seven years to do something that I could see clearly there was a need for. Uh, it was about it was in the area of economic uh, research and publishing. Was I passionate about that? No, not really. And it was highly successful, and I eventually sold it to a major bank. On the other hand, I loved the Pizza Hut business. It was great, uh-huh. but it nearly it nearly killed me. You know, for all those reasons that I talked about a minute ago. I so, see. what I quite like to see when people are are asking me or, or or I'm consulting or working with them down at that stage at the early struggle startup stage, I like to see realism. I mean, hopeful realism is really perfect. Uh, you be hopeful, be enthusiastic, but be realistic. And then we're much more uh, less likely to find money running out or time running out or, you know, we just cocoon ourselves with uh, some, you know, rainbow and unicorn-like business plans that just aren't going to happen. I know you've also said that you've helped a lot of people start their own businesses and whatnot. And uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is that you've helped people who want to go into business for themselves but don't actually have an idea as to to what to do. So for those of entrepreneurs out there who they they have the idea that they want to be in business for themselves but they have no idea exactly what business to potentially tackle, what advice can you give them? Well, uh, you know, not to be uh, too uh, uh, obvious or glib about it, find somebody that's got an idea. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, I, all of the research shows that businesses started by teams uh, 
have far more chance of success than businesses started by one person. And in fact, if you look at the statistics, two-person startups have much better chance of survival than one person, three-person even more so. And then it peaks roughly at a, at a team of four. After that, the iterative advantage of having more than four people on a team, not saying you shouldn't have it, but you want to be in a team of at least two, three, four people. Mm-hmm. And if you're somebody who really wants to get into business and you don't have a business idea, you know it's not that hard, particularly just at the stage that we're in at the moment, to find people who have got business ideas. And although I don't coach in that area much these days anymore in the many many years when I did do it one of the great joys we had was putting people together in you know almost uh, it was almost like a speed dating right. uh, con- contest the way we did it we would just put people in a room we'd give them an evening we'd give them two to three hours uh, and we'd get maybe 15 20 people together and just see how they jibe and almost always what happened was that somebody with a you know a well thought through idea was desperately looking for somebody that I would call an operator Part of the next book that I'm writing that comes out in in January talks about how the visionary interacts with the operator Mm. to produce really what the magic is that gets businesses through early struggle and into fun, which is the first growth stage in predictable success. And what we noticed over and over again were that V's and O's, people with ideas and people with lots of energy and enthusiasm, but both with the same desire to work, to start their own business, they naturally gravitate to each other. Funny enough, it's almost when you watch them act in a room together, a room full of V's, a room full of visionaries, people who've got the idea and who want to launch. It's almost like they're negatively, magnetically uh, opposed. You know, they'll come towards each other and then they'll swerve at the last minute. Uh, you know, uh, metaphorically speaking, they, they'll, yeah. they'll talk. They, uh, we would watch them talk, but within five minutes, they'd very pleasantly say thank you very much and they'd move on to the next person. Because you know, n- nobody w- who's got a big idea has got the time or energy or bandwidth to spend with somebody else in their bigger idea. They're looking for an implement. So I would say in the tech world, as you know, Sean, at the moment, there's an awful lot of really good uh, incubation activity going on, like some tech stars, Y Combinator, uh, Koloft, who you and I know real well. Yeah. Uh, and in the non-tech area, although it doesn't get as much press and it's not as sexy, there are a lot of similar uh, activities going on. And probably your local chamber of commerce will be able to point you to one or two outlets like that. You know, and, and you know, just scar Craigslist, and you'll find people who are looking for others to join with them in new ventures. Now, of course, you want to do your due diligence and work and make sure you're getting yourself involved in reasonable people. But that's what I would say: go find somebody with an idea and link up with them, because by golly, they're out there looking for you. Um, And that's interesting about, you know, the number of people, um, you know, starting a business and whatnot. I mean, I know that, you know, my most successful venture has been with, you know, a small handful of people that we started out and turned it into a a full-grown business. So, Yeah, there's a a great uh, model uh, called Johari's Window, which sounds very foreign and Eastern and and exotic. It's actually two guys who went to Yale called Joe and Harry, and uh, they got together and put this concept together. And essentially what Johari's window says is, uh, you know, we all have our blind spots. There's all stuff, there's all, always stuff that we don't know we don't know. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in my observation, it's what you don't know you don't know that gets you in the end. When I talk to people whose businesses didn't work out, or whose businesses did work out but, you know, wasn't as big a success as they had hoped or thought – it, you know, it's never something that they knew about that hit them in the face because, you know, who's that dumb? If you know that there's a problem, right. you're going you're to try to fix it. But interestingly, it's not even the stuff that they know they don't know. You know, I talk with bright folks who know that they don't know about accounting or know that they don't know about engineering or, or marketing. 
typically, once you're aware of that, you'll do whatever's necessary to try to find out about it. It's the stuff that you don't know, you don't know, that gets you. And the, the more you, you group yourself with a team, then the more you're reducing that DK, DK, that don't know, don't mm-hmm. know area right. down and down, because the team has a much smaller DK, DK than we do as individuals. It's almost like portfolio theory. It's highly reducing the level of risk of failure because it's highly reducing the, the area of things that you don't know you don't know about. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. But what about the other side of, you know, working with, uh, with others and business partners and whatnot? I mean, that obviously presents itself with a number of challenges as well. And I know a lot of businesses have fallen apart because of personalities and whatnot. So can you talk about that a little bit? Like, how do you overcome that? How do you find the right people to get together with uh, and that kind of thing? Interestingly, the issue that got me started in this, which if you remember, was seeing these businesses that had otherwise been successful start to fail when we were running our incubation business. It came right down to that in the end. What what we discovered was we were helping businesses through the first stage that every organization goes through, which I've referred to a number of times we call early struggle. It's typically a huge generalization, but it's typically two to four years. And essentially, it's uh, what the struggle is all about is to find your profitable, sustainable market. And if you find a profitable, sustainable market, you get to go, go, get into the next stage of growth, which I call fun. And if you don't, the business dies. I mean, that's the problem with early struggle. There's nowhere else to go. It's either up or out. You've, it's binary. You, you, you succeed or fail. Right. The pressures and tensions in early struggle are so intense that typically – of the one in five businesses that make it through that first stage, they've built a really, really tight team. The folks that you know have got through there, as I say, it's, it's typically only one in five businesses that get through it, get to the fun stage of, of early growth. They've usually rubbed the edges off each other and they, and they work really well together. They're, they're pretty tight, they're a high degree of loyalty. Even if they don't all have equity, there'll be a lot of sweat equity with almost everybody in the team. And so fun really is fun. Uh, we've got a profitable, sustainable market. We're now all about mining that market. We're not worried about finding it. We've found it. Now we're mining it. Right. And because, because we start with such a low market share, you know, 0. 0.000 something of 1%, we can pitch in with double-digit, triple-digit growth for quite a number of years. And, you know, we're snatching victory out of the jaws of defeat. We're, we're, we're stealing business that bigger people shouldn't have got. We, you know, if a customer wants 500 widgets in blue and the day before they're due to be delivered, changes their mind, wants them in pink. Well, we all get down our hands and knees with paintbrushes and we repaint the damn things pink, <laughs> right? you know, and then we go and have a beer bust. It's that sort of a tight, very cohesive, highly aligned organization. And those were the types of businesses that we were typically growing back in the incubation days. But then what happens is this, and it ultimately comes down to a personality issue. What happens is that as the business succeeds and grows during fun, absolutely as a given, it becomes more complex. might take a few years, but eventually we've got a more complex business, more complex than the visceral freewheeling management style that got us here can cope with. And we begin to drop the ball. We order the wrong product or we deliver the wrong service to the wrong client or we just turn up at the wrong day or we forget an appointment, something. And we begin to do that more and more. And what we realize is, uh uh-oh, we're getting our ass kicked here. The business has become complex. Essentially, the issue is we don't have the systems and processes to master this. So we were delivering really high quality consistently in the face of simplicity for maybe a number of years by now, but now we're challenged with delivering high quality consistently in the face of complexity. 
And what that means is, for the first time, typically, we've got to put some serious systems and processes in place. We've got to start saying no to some things, and we've got to start getting much more efficient. We've been highly effective up to this point. The problem is this. Typically, the core founder-owner team who had all of those problems through early struggle, who beat that and, and got themselves a really good business, who became really tight together, what happens is that they kick against the loss of autonomy and freedom that comes with sticking by systems and processes over time. And when the business hits this third stage that I call whitewater, typically what happens is that the founding team have got a lot of, not necessarily personality issues, but style issues whereby they'll intellectually accept that, okay, we need to bring some systems and processes in here to stop this rocking backwards and forwards and to restabilize the business. But after they think they've restabilized it, the first thing they want to do is junk the systems and processes again and go back to the freewheeling days that they had before. And, of course, what happens is they slide back into fun the business starts to grow again, then you need systems and processes again. And a lot of times the first founding team will move in and out of whitewater two or three times without ever pushing through the whole way to predictable success. And it's very tiring. It's very, and it causes a lot of conflict and it often breaks teams up at that point. And of course, what needs to happen there is that our big V that we had at the outset that we talked about. The visionary, al- right. Correct. Along with the O who's making everything happen they need to add to that what I call the processor, somebody or a group of people or a team or whatever who bring systems and processes to bear. And they've got to give them co-equality with the V and the O in terms of the overlying management style, not necessarily in terms of equity, in fact, very rarely that, but certainly in terms of, of what they're paying attention to. And instead of thinking, oh, it's just all about you know coming in Monday morning with the vision for this week and the operator going out and making it happen, we've got to actually make all of that work within our systems and processes. So we need this P, this processor mentality here. And getting that P to come in and stick is really the trick in Whitewater. Because the problem is that the V in, uh, in particular, the O to some extent, but the V in particular just loathes the restrictions on their autonomy that the P is constantly imposing on them. So sometimes the organ gets rejected by the body and the P doesn't last too long, you know, because uh-huh. the P just looks like, a, you know, making the problem worse. This, this wretched person is just a bureaucrat. Just a counter, just a bean counter, making my life miserable. It was bad enough six months ago. Now it's even worse. So we will either marginalise this poor individual, or we'll outright fire them. And we shoot right back into fun, so it feels good for a little while. We can, you know, uh, run around uh, doing our visceral thing, and then we grow a bit, and then we hit white water again. And so what I discovered was that unless you take a somewhat structured approach and understand that. If you really want to scale your business, mm-hmm. you can't go back to fun. You've got to push through to the stage, which I call predictable success, where the difference is this. You can, at this point, once you've put this, those systems and processes in place and kept them in place so that they become a systemic part of the business, you're now at a point where you can scale to whatever size your industry will allow you. And that's the difference between predictable success and fun. In fun, there's a cap on growth. Mm-hmm. It's perfectly valid to go back there and, and stay there and say, I don't, I don't want to do all of this. I don't want the systems and processes. I don't want to you know, scale to whatever size my industry will allow. I mean, I've done that in my own business. I, I live in fun. I, I don't want to build a, 
I don't want to build a consulting practice anymore the way I used to. I don't want to become the next uh, Accenture or, or, or Bain or whoever. Mm-hmm. I'm not prepared to pay the price for that. I've chosen to go back to fun and stay here and not grow to that point where I need to start bringing in systems and processes and other people. But if you, and many, most of the clients that I work with do, if you want to get to the point where you can grow your business to whatever size your industry will allow, at some point you've got to bring that P role in. You've got to embrace it and not reject it. You've got to learn to live with it and push through Whitewater to the other side, which is predictable success, rather than just going back to fun and then up to Whitewater again in a sort of a cycle over and over again. No, that's good. And I'm glad that you mentioned that, you know, sometimes people make the choice. No, I just want to have my business be, you know, a small business. I'm happy with the way that it is. And that's a legitimate choice that, you know, someone needs to make. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a great choice. I love it. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of great artisans, what I call artisans, who love the thing that they do. And they're just not prepared to give up the loss of the personal touch. And, you know, when I was, when I was running my 120-person consulting firm, I reached the point where I realized that I was so rarely doing the thing that I actually love doing, which was to work with and consult and coach and help people. I was spending so much time, you know, talking up uh, with the staff and working out where our next office was going to be and all that sort of stuff. I just didn't want to do that anymore. But it's, it's equally valid to say, hey, you know what, particularly if you've got outside shareholders, I have no option. Now. I've got to scale this business. So in that case, we've got to push through and make this happen. Right, right. Now, as we all know, many businesses do fail. How do we know when it's time to pull the plug? Well, I don't think it's ever necessary to pull the plug once you've got out of early struggle until the business has lost its market. And that doesn't have to happen at any point up to the stage that we've talked about here through to predictable success. So once you get out of um, early struggle, if you can't get out of early struggle, you, sh- you, you know, you're going to have no option but to pull the plug. The plug will be pulled for you. Right. So in other words, if you don't find a profitable, sustainable market, then you're screwed. So the business will die. And that's not really a question of choice. It's just a, the end result of a formula. You, you, you will run out of money eventually. But assuming you find a profitable, sustainable market, you can take the business right through fund, right through Whitewater, right up into predictable success. And, and as I've said earlier, you can theoretically loop in there for as long as you as you want. But the reality is that what happens with us all being, you know, human, having done a thing which was good, which turned out to be good eventually, which is to put systems and processes in place, and having gone through the pain of doing that and found out that it was good and helpful at the other side, and then having got the scale and growth that we get in predictable success, well, what do we do with something that was good? Well, we do more of it, of course, and so we put more systems and processes in place. And what begins to happen at that point when we become over-systematized is the business begins to pitch forward into the decline stage. Now, it does it first of all by sliding into a stage that I call treadmill. And in treadmill, we're just beginning to get a little arthritic and creaky. Uh, you know, we're starting to emphasize form over function. The systems are beginning to dictate what happens. You know, it's more about finishing a checklist than it is doing the thing that you were there to do. And treadmill is a relatively natural stage for the business. But the key distinction here, the important thing is that in treadmill, the business can self-diagnose or management can self-diagnose and somebody can put their hand up and say, you know, come on, this, this is crazy. We need to just do away with that whole block of systems there. That's getting between us and the customer. We need to get more you know, entrepreneurial there. We've got to take a few more risks. We've got to show some initiative. The problem occurs, which leads me to answer your question in a second. The problem occurs if you don't catch that quickly enough. 
because what happens in treadmill is that the speed of change, the speed of over-systematization begins to increase. And before you know it, if you're not careful, the business will pitch forward into a stage which I call the big rut. And the big rut is essentially treadmill, but we've lost the power to, to, to self-diagnose. We like it at this point. We like being over-systematized. We're in our comfort zone. Customers are a pain in the neck. And <laughs> anybody who's gone to the DMV will know <laughs> right. what it's like to deal with an organization that's in the big rut. But unfortunately, quite a lot of, of, um, of commercial organizations get themselves into the big rut as well. And at that point, whether or not anybody decides to the business will eventually die. It's just a matter of time. Typically, nobody will pull the lights out. Nobody's going to voluntarily say, oh, we're in the big rut. We're not innovating. We're not doing anything creative. We're not doing anything new. Let's just kill this business. What will happen is that the people who are there typically who get hired during late treadmill and early big rut, they're people who like being there. They're typically bureaucrats. And they'll just fiddle while the while the Titanic sinks. And the, the business will. It might take a very, very long time because typically there's a big asset base at this point, maybe a lot of cash. There's often a lot of legacy income from customers we've got locked into you know, various sorts of plans. And so the big rut can last for a long time, but it's essentially dead man walking. The business is dead. It's got no soul. There's nothing in there to innovate. And there's no question but that it's only a matter of time before it hits the very last stage, which I call death rattle. Mm -hmm. So the business will kill itself over time if we don't catch it in treadmill. And rather than saying, you know, when's the time to kill this business? My coaching to folks has always been what you've got to watch out for. Once you get out of of, uh, early struggle and you've got a profitable, sustainable market – all you need to do is watch for treadmill. And once you get there, you've got to ease up on the systems and processes. And if you do that, you'll never need to kill your business because you'll always have that entrepreneurial, risk-taking, flexibility, innovation, showing initiative that will adapt around the marketplace. Uh, and, and, and that means you won't get caught out. I see. So it's more about identifying the symptoms and, and correcting them before you even even get there. Yeah, because there's no need once you find a profitable. I, I, you know, my heart bleeds when I see businesses that go under or need to be put to the knife uh, that didn't have to because somebody made a, a you know a ghastly misstep. Once you're out of early struggle, there's no theoretical reason why you can't get your business up to predictable success or to fund whichever you prefer and keep it there indefinitely. Uh, another question, sort of about the startup phase, I guess, is is how do we go about pricing our product for or service that we're selling? What what uh, advice can you give us in that area? Typically, service providers grossly underprice. That's the most common thing that I see over and over again. Most service providers are frightened of asking what really they know they need and should get in order to have a sustainable business. And they see it, it's understandable. I've been there many, many times. They see it as a market entry strategy. And so, you know, they think, uh, well, I'm a, I'm a chiropractor. People are charging the equivalent. I'm going to really simplify this hugely. People are charging the equivalent of, you know, 200 zlotties an hour. Right. I, I, to get going, I'm going to charge 125. And then they get into this vicious cycle where as a result of that, that remaining 75 is comprises two things. One, the business's profit, and secondly, their basic salary. And so they end up you know, not taking a salary. The business isn't making a profit, so it's not getting any traction. And they're not building a viable, profitable, sustainable market. They might build a market, but it's not profitable. And then, of course, the moment they put their 
rates up because they got their people based on price those people are the very people who will immediately swap and find you know, the next low price provider in the area because if they came to you because of low pricing, they'll go to other people because of low pricing. And so I encourage people over and over and over again, you've got to go in at the market price. You cannot use discount pricing as a market entry strategy if you're a service-based business, or you can, but you're hugely increasing the probability that you won't successfully get out of early struggle. And that's a tough thing to do. It's really, really hard. It's painful for people to do, but it, it's absolutely essential. For non-service businesses where there's product and manufacturing involved, again, this sounds very, very mundane, but it's hugely important. The thing I tell people all the time is you've got to start with cost or job accounting pretty much immediately. What I see happen a lot is people start a manufacturing or a distribution business, and they do quite well for a while. But then they take on you know some new business, and they start to lose money. And two things happen. One is because they're typically only getting their accounts produced very infrequently, usually only for tax purposes. They don't really know about it for some time. The bank account might look healthy, but then eventually the cash catches up and they find that they've actually taken on some unprofitable business. I mean, I had a great business, a great client of mine back in the UK made sandwiches, gourmet sandwiches for uh, various deli and other chains. Got a huge contract for one of the railroad utilities back in the UK. And about 18 months after he was into the contract, he discovered that it was killing him. He was losing a fortune. on, But because he didn't have any job accounting, any cost accounting, he didn't have his costs broken out. He wasn't able to tell for that length of time where he was losing the money. He just knew he was losing money. It's vital to know where you are. So service businesses, don't underprice yourself. And distribution and manufacturing businesses, get cost accounting in as soon as ever you can. And I know, I know your background is in accounting. How important is it to have an accounting background if you're going into business? Is that an essential factor? Or should everybody who wants to be an entrepreneur go bone up on uh, accounting courses and whatnot? Or what's your take on that? I certainly don't believe that people need to have an accountant-level understanding of accounting, uh, Sean. But I do think, I, I mean, I, I say it to people all the time, if you have any serious idea about starting a business and you're bamboozled by numbers Mm -hmm. then you know you really are hobbling yourself and i advise people not you know you don't have to go qualify to dear lovers to be a cpa but you can go take a summer night uh, school you know a six to eight week course at your local community college and it will be the best investment you could make and i'm talking about people who really don't understand numbers what i say to people is if you can read a simple balance sheet a simple profit and loss account, and a simple cash flow, then you've got what you need. If you can't read those, you're really dicing with uh, danger here because that's the core of your business. It's the heart of your business. And if you don't understand how it's working, then you can really get yourself in trouble. So no, you don't need to go and become a CPA. But there are some great little night classes that uh, you know most community colleges provide, and I'd go sign up for one of those. Okay, so let's talk about leadership a little bit here. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of businesses run by consensus of sort of everybody involved while others have a, you know, have one very strong leader. And you've talked about the visionary versus that operating uh, guy as well. Does it matter exactly like who's in charge or who's leading the team or what about this, you know, sort of lead by consensus kind of thing? Tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, I can only share my own experience and observations. Obviously, Sean, to me, from what I've seen, outright consensus is uh, unfortunately not a model that makes for a good, flexible business growth. I think large entities that are hovering in and around the treadmill stage, sort of dicing with big rut, often fall into a consensus mode, but in my observation, then amplifies that and makes things worse. What I see is best is where there's non-dictatorial, but clearly in charge leader of a highly competent team who aren't afraid to deliver a strong challenge factor. Now, that isn't a nice little short soundbite, but that's that's the team grouping that I've seen work best, where you've got a first amongst equals. It's obvious. Everybody knows who that person is, that they don't shy away from making hard decisions or taking consensus from the group and then making the decision out of that, uh, surrounded by highly competent individuals who work well as peers and who aren't afraid to to deliver a challenge factor to the leader. That bit in the middle is quite important, and it's where there's often a gap uh, where I mentioned about the management team working well as peers. What I, I see happen a lot is that management teams coalesce usually for the first time in early whitewater, that stage, that, that growth stage I was talking about where the business first hits complexity. And often what happens at that point is that the managers who have been appointed have been appointed because they're really good at managing vertically. They manage their own team really well. So you've got a sales manager manages his or her own team really well. You've got the admin person manages their team really well. What they're typically not good at is handling the baton from department to department, from group to group. And it's almost directly a correlation between how well the management team gets at that and how quickly they grow through to predictable success. So an obvious leader who's a strong, first amongst equals, a strong team of competent individuals who work well as peers and who deliver a good challenge function back to the, to the leader, that's, that's the best uh, grouping that I see. So, Les, tell us a little bit about your business now. I know you've written this book. You said you have one on the way. Uh, and I know you're also available to hire as a speaker and whatnot. Tell us a little bit more about what exactly is your company and what it is that you do. Well, my company is me. That's the first thing. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're talking to us, and we're uh, just getting over a head cold. Uh, but I, I act as, a, as a, a consultant and coach to two groups of people. One is the almost always founder-owner team that get to whitewater, hit that growth stage that I talked about. And uh, typically there I'm working with the CEO, founder, owner, and their team to do what's necessary to build those systems and processes and make the changes in the way they manage the business to get to predictable success. And uh, in, in the second part of the book, I detail at some length what the usual things are that I, I do with, with those groups to get them from whitewater into predictable success. And then the other half are typically C-level executives, SVP, senior vice presidents in uh, larger organizations, Fortune 1000 size, typically not the CEO of of the total organization, but more typically an SVP in charge of a division or a department where they've hit treadmill, the business has become over-systematized, and they want to recover 
some of that entrepreneurial creativity risk-taking uh, initiative that they had earlier on. And it's often, not always, but it's often somebody who's relatively new into the position who comes with a fresh pair of eyes and who puts their hands up and says, you know what, we're, we're in treadmill here and we need, to, we need to back up on systems a little bit and bring back more entrepreneurial flair. So those two groups are, the, are where I do consulting and coaching. And then, as you say, I do a, quite a large amount of speaking to both organizations themselves who bring me inside to talk to their senior management team and, and often the wider workforce as well, and many times to institutions and organizations who are having conventions or events and want me to come bring the predictable success message to them. So what advice can you offer to anyone who's thinking about starting their own business? The advice I would give them goes back a little bit to what we talked about before, which is that that early struggle, that first period of time, is actually the most dangerous time in every organization's entire life cycle. All the other stages, even the tough ones like Whitewater, are not as dangerous. Uh, there isn't as much likelihood of, of not making it than an early struggle. And what I tell people is, is to multiply whatever their budgets, their, you know, their initial projections look, uh, say that they need, you've got to multiply it by three and you've got to go find whatever that is. And people look at me, you know, like I've just flown down from Mars and I understand that because, you know, typically people do business plans and they look at what they're going to have to do to fund the startup of their business and it, and it just makes their heart sink. And then I come along as glib Irishman and say, <laughs> you know, triple that. And they're like, are you crazy? I don't even know where I'm going to get that number, never mind three times. Right. But the reality is it works. Uh, you know, by the end of the uh, 42 entity sequence of my own serial entrepreneurship, I just it was just an absolute rule. If I couldn't get three times what was needed, I wasn't going to do it because I'd seen the pain and grief that just trying to scrape by did before. And so that might mean teaming up with somebody else. It might mean finding some external funding. It might mean accelerating an access to funding you've already got. But one way or another, get three times what you think it needs. And get yourself some sort of an outside advisor, particularly if you're not starting up with a team. Even if you are starting up with a team, get at least one person who has no monetary interest in the business, who's got some history and background of running an even better starting a successful business. And just ask them if, the, if you can come have coffee with them once a month. Tell them you'll take no more than half an hour of their time. Just because the, you know, anybody who says yes is going to end up sitting with you for 90 minutes of, <laughs> voluntarily on their, own free, on their own free will. I, I just talk to them about what's going on and get some outside perspective. It's a crushing, I mean, you know this as well as I do, uh, Sean, it's a crushingly lonely time starting up your own business and it's painfully pressured and stressed. And yeah. to, to be able to go talk to someone else who's, who doesn't have a dog in the hunt is very important. No, that's great advice. Thank you. So uh, finally, tell us how people can find you and Predictable Success. PredictableSuccess.com is the easiest way to do it. Just go to PredictableSuccess.com, all one word. And uh, they can buy the book, uh, sign up for my blog, which is free. They can link through to, to me on any of the social networks, Twitter, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. And um, just about everything that I do gets put through there. Great, great. Well, thanks a lot, Les, for coming on the show today and uh, teaching us about predictable success and your system. And, and uh, we, we learned a lot. And uh, we wish you a profitable future. Thank you. And same to you. for listening to The Independent Entrepreneur. The show's theme song, Tommy in the Morning, is by Pete Huttlinger and used with his permission. All other content on this show is copyright 2011 
by Sean Salisbury. We hope you've enjoyed this interview. For more information and to listen to other interviews, please visit www.indiebizshow.com. That's www.indybizshow.com. Thank you.